Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Today, we're coming to you from Schleswig-Holstein in Germany, which is where Alistair is, and Amman in Jordan, where I am. And we'll be discussing issues from across the globe, including Eurovision, Northern Ireland, Sri Lanka, and Palestine. Thank you to everyone who sent in a question this week. We've received over 500 across Twitter and email, so we'll try to answer as many of these as is possible too. So Alistair, let's get going. You've been in Belgium. Now you're on the border of Germany and Denmark. Are you doing a Eurovision tour? (laughs) Yeah, one of my many unfulfilled life ambitions. I would love to represent the United Kingdom in Eurovision. I I think we should get get you up there. What what are you going to do? What's the performance going to be? Well, it'd have to be bagpipes, I guess, but I don't know whether that would how that would go down well. But I I thought this this year's Eurovision was pretty good. I mean, I I think it was wonderful that Ukraine won. Uh, And actually, we had a great question from somebody asking what what did we think Putin would think of that. Um, and there was, I don't know if you saw the story, but the Italian, the Italian, uh, security services did detect a, an attempt by the Russians to hack the voting. So maybe he did take it seriously. Um, here's a quiz question for you, Rory. Do you know the last time that the United Kingdom actually won Eurovision? I do not. When was the last time we won? It was two days after the election of Tony Blair as prime minister in May 1997. Everything was going so well. And the story is we basically almost won again. At least we won with the jury. Is that right? Yeah, and, 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 and actually it was a really, really good song, Sam Ryder. I think it would have won if it had not been for the, the politics of, uh, of Ukraine, but I don't think anybody's, anybody's going to uh, object to that. And are you a big regular? Do you watch the Eurovision every year? Is that one of your things? Uh, no, no, I wouldn't make a point of it, but I do quite like it, and I, and, and I like the sort of silliness of it. And, and occasionally you, get, you do get amazing things break through. I mean, ABBA's obviously the, the most important of that, but uh, no, I think it's a bit of kind of harmless fun isn't it so um but and, and i'm in uh, in germany as you said and uh germany actually almost got null point they got two um so <laughs> and do, do, do other european countries take it more seriously than britain i get the impression of britain it's always sort of quite seen as quite a kitsch humorous thing i think it's pretty much the same around europe uh i i was in belgium as you say when it was happening and uh the the coverage there was all about ukraine but it was quite you know i think it's a pretty big deal um, and the the reason that I, I recall the 1997 thing, I can remember that as will happen with Ukraine now, if you win it, you then have to host it the next year. Uh, and my favorite tweet of the week was from Tim Walker, my colleague at the New European, who said that, um, oh, it's a good job that Britain didn't win because, of course, Priti Patel and Nadine Dorries would have wanted to have, hold the final in Rwanda next year. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. 
Um, so you're, you're in this place called Schleswig-Holstein, and um, this was a kind of big question, was it a kind of huge question in 19th century politics. Are you are you going to tell us, what, A, there's a joke, and B, what the hell that joke was about? <laughs> uh, the joke was from Palmerston, I think, and he said there are only three people who understand the Schleswig-Holstein, you've got me at it there, the Schleswig-Holstein question. One is dead, the other, one is mad, and I'm the third and I've forgotten. Uh, but it was basically about borders. It was like you were saying, you know, Denmark. It was is is who are the Danes who live in Germany and the Germans who live in De- Denmark? And and I can literally, I can if I skew with my laptop to show you over there, the De- I can sort of see a Danish island over there. Um, so yeah, it's about borders. It's about borders. So maybe I've come here to get away from the other border in the news at the moment. One more thing, just before we get get you onto the other border, Hollande, you saw. Um the ex-president of France. Mm. And and I think you had an opportunity to talk about Brexit and other stuff. We talked about lots of stuff. I spent several hours with him. And, and if I've, I've mentioned the New European, I've written a long piece about him for uh, for this week. And he, he it was very, very interesting because, I mean, I, I know Holland quite well. Um, and I did a bit of work with him when he was president. And I never quite understood why he became so unpopular. I mean, he literally did have at one point his positive approval rating was 4%. Amazing, uh, wasn't it? But he always had a great sense of humour. I can remember I can remember saying to him, you do realise that you're now on the same number that believe Elvis Presley is alive. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, but he was, he was very interesting about Putin because, of course, he was a big part of the – the, the the Minsk um, debate, him and Merkel and Poroshenko with Putin. His big thing on Putin, he said he's not insane. Um, he's absolutely driven by a total, in his mind, logical hatred of the United States, who he blames for the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he thinks is the worst thing that's ever happened. Um, he thinks he will dig in for as long as it takes. He thinks he doesn't really care about the the losses and and and, and so forth. He's he he thought it was very interesting that he didn't mention nuclear weapons in his May Day, in his Victory Day speech. Uh, but he says that doesn't make him feel any less worried that if, if push came to shove, he would be the first maybe to use them. Um, and he on Brexit, he basically was in a place that you and you and I are. Is that he thinks that the problem for Britain at the moment, is that we do not have a serious prime minister. He was absolutely scathing about Johnson in terms of him not being serious um, and said that in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol, for example, he said he just, the French and the Germans, the rest of Europe, can't quite believe that this guy is literally sort of, he didn't use these phrases, my phrase, but playing with fire in how unserious he is. Um, so it was all, it was very interesting and very interesting about him and about French politics. I've got a feeling he might, he's not ruling himself out in future. Um, and he felt that although Macron won, he thinks France is becoming very, very, very difficult to govern because although Macron dominates the center, the extremes are very powerful. And he, and he made a fascinating demographic point. He said, if you look at the demographics, young people voted overwhelmingly hard left. Uh, old people voted overwhelmingly Macron. The centre ground, generationally, were overwhelmingly extreme right. 
Amazing. And he says that as that older generation dies, France has got a real problem, unless, he said, new people emerge, etc., etc., etc. So it was very similar to the kind of stuff that we've been talking about in the UK. On the border, I've been doing the slightly horrible thing, which is that I rewatched the leadership debate that I did against Boris Johnson and the other candidates in 2019 when I was trying oh to run to be prime minister. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before we go on, <laughs> before we go on, why did you do that? When, when did you do that? And where did you do that? <laughs> So I'm trying, I'm trying to write about the experience. I'm trying to get my head around how I managed to screw up so badly and what went wrong in that debate. And, and I did it here in Jordan, sitting in my room. It wasn't, wasn't quite as dismal as it sounds. It wasn't quite me two in the morning over a bottle of whiskey, which is, um, but it, it, it was really, I mean, I'm, I've, it's like a nightmare. I feel like watching it as though I've got concrete boots on my feet because I keep thinking, what could I have done to win this? How could I have turned around? So we're all sitting on these funny bar stools, like a boy band. And Emily Maitlis from the BBC is comparing it. There's a big sign saying, who's going to be Britain's next prime minister? And one of the central questions in that debate was around Ireland and the Irish border. And I am saying again and again that the only way of having a soft Brexit that controls immigration and avoids a problem in Northern Ireland is to go with Theresa May's backstop. And everybody else on the stage, so that's Boris Johnson, that's Sajid Javid, uh, that's Jeremy Hunt, that's Michael Gove, are all saying, no, 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 they can get a much better deal out of Brussels. They're going to get it by the 31st of October. There's going to be no problems on the Irish border. They've got a technological solution. And also, by the way, that no deal is going to be no problem. And they're going to keep that in their back pocket to threaten. Even, Even Hunt was doing that, yeah. Even Jeremy Hunt was doing I've forgotten that. that. Yeah, I've forgotten yeah. that. Yeah. Even Jeremy Hunt was doing that. So I am sitting there thinking that I've got to be able to win this. This has got to be simple to win because the facts are so straightforward. Now, the facts are that two sovereign nations have to have a border unless they have the same import regulations, is the way someone framed it for me. And yeah. because of the Good Friday Agreement, you can't have a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Um, so if you try to have different import regulations, you're going to have to put it in the Irish Sea, right? It's not, not a very difficult argument, except, of course, saying it to you now, Alastair, I realize that actually that's a bit of a mouthful. Mm. How do you get that across in a debate where five men are shouting at each other on a funny stage, where the clock is ticking down, where you're aware that you've got, if you're lucky, I think I got 45 seconds on that mm. subject. Well, it's hard. It's hard. But what I, I, can, I can remember that debate. I remember it for lots of reasons. One, uh, just how depressing it was, frankly, to see Johnson there just doing all his, you know, bluster and bullshit. Uh, I, I do remember you taking your tie off and say to Fiona, what on earth is he doing? And I could also remember these agonized faces that you kept pulling. Um, so I, can, I, I sort of did feel your pain. But I'll tell you, I think it might have been a moment. This might have been not your style, I don't know, but it might have been a moment to say, look, I don't say this lightly, but I'm standing here, I'm sitting here as the only one of these five people, dear British people, who is actually telling you the truth. They are lying about this. They are not being straight with you. They're not being frank with you. They are, they are hoping that we can just bulldoze our way through a few minutes on this. And Emily, I'm going to insist you must allow me to explain this point. And it may not be capable, I may not be capable of doing it in 10 seconds, but if we're talking about the future of our country and the future of our union, then please allow me the respect to having two minutes to explain this to you. That's what I would have done. It's nice. It's nice. I mean, I, I, I keep looking at it, trying to work it. I think that would have been an approach. I think it would have been very difficult to pull off. 
I think that the other thing that I was wondering is that whether what I needed to do was actually diffuse it and use humor. I mean, I was very lucky in the Channel 4 debate to be able to say all these guys are trying to cram three bin bags into a rubbish bin and shouting, believe in Britain, believe in the bin. And that seemed to work. Yeah. But you're not, but at that stage, Rory, you, you were not going to out funny Johnson because that was his shtick. Exactly. And you, 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 were this, you were the serious guy coming up out of nowhere, getting a lot of attention because of your walks and all that stuff. Um, I don't think that would have worked. I think you had to call them out. The, the problem is when I tried to call them out, I ended up sounding very sort of angry and pedantic and argumentative. And I keep interrupting them and saying, you know, but Boris, you cannot have a transition agreement without a deal. And he would sort of waffle on about transition agreement and waffle mm. on about GATT 24. And then when I was going to him, somebody else would say, and we're going to deal, leave, Sajid would say, we're leaving by 31st of October, come up May. And I'd be like, you can't leave by 31st of October. Parliament's not going to let you leave by 31st. Why are we even having this discussion? This is mad. But uh, I think uh, what you observed there, me taking off my tie and that sort of agonized posture, <laughs> was a sense of the whole debate just getting away from me that we wasted the first 11 minutes with Emily Maitlis for some reason obsessed with a discussion about whether they were going to leave on the 31st of October or the 2nd of November. And then she, after 25 minutes, when I, I think managed to get about two and a half minutes in, said, enough on Brexit now, and we're going to move on to other questions. Incredible. And the first question was, what tax cuts are you going to offer? So everybody else made their tax cuts and pledges. And again, I was trying to be the voice of truth. So I said, I don't think this is the time to be making tax cuts. I, I think our public finance is a big problem, partly because of Brexit and security. And if I had more money, I'd spend it on public services. I wouldn't be cutting taxes more. At which point, the questioner, who's on this huge screen, I think it's called James from Oxford, says, Rory Stewart is completely out of touch. I don't know what planet he's on. I asked him a question about tax cuts and all he's talking about is Brexit. And at that point, I really realized that I had screwed the whole pooch. And I, I felt... <laughs> And I felt incredible responsibility. I felt, you know, I just handed the whole country over to this completely mad conversation because I haven't worked out how to operate in a debate. I, I, I feel I'm becoming your therapist here, Rory. You're very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, is there anything else you'd like to tell me about how you were feeling? <laughs> You've had a lot of practice, Alistair. <laughs> but mainly on the other side. Let's just go through some of the questions that came in on, on Northern. We had lots and lots on Northern Ireland this week. But one that really interested me, there's a couple of questions to this. Jeff Ashton, how hard is it to conclude that a once great policy has had its day? Is the power sharing formula for Northern Ireland no longer applicable? And Dawn Whitley asked, uh, what would have happened if the alliance had come first or second? And that's a very, very interesting question because, of course, the Good Friday Agreement is, it has to be a nationalist and a unionist. Yeah. And the first, the first minister is essentially symbolic because they're equal. Yeah. And, of course, I don't know how much you know about Bosnia, but Bosnia was a place where, as it were, inbuilt power sharing eventually became a problem and maybe becomes a problem well, in Northern well, Ireland. This is a really big issue, isn't it? Because it's true. It's the criticism of Bosnia. It's the criticism of Northern Ireland. It's the criticism of Lebanon. It's the criticism of Iraq. So the big cliché is that these type of power-sharing arrangements just embed sectarian divisions. Mm. So in Iraq, in a way, it made people much more conscious of being Sunni and Shia than they'd ever been before because they created these structures. But to be fair to the people who brought these deals together, and you were obviously involved very closely in the Good Friday Agreement, at the time, 
it's almost impossible to imagine getting a deal that doesn't reassure the two sides that they're going to have a balance of power. And so to bring the peace, to end the war, you have to share power. But the problem then is that you, in a sense, freeze the conflict. Mm. And right next door to me here in Lebanon, I mean, we, this is happening at the most, most extreme level imaginable where, I mean, I, I, British press barely cover Lebanon at the moment, but it's heartbreaking beyond imagining. This was the mm. great capital of the Arab world, horrible experience of civil war. Peace came, had become by the early 2000s of yet again, a very, very vibrant, exciting place, amazing universities, education, culture, art. And just in the last four or five years, there's this terrible bomb on the waterfront. And and now horrible food shortages, partly caused by the Russia-Ukraine crisis, which is you know, a story also which I hope we can get onto in a bit, because we can now see Russia-Ukraine just spilling all the way mm. from Lebanon to North Africa, right the way out to Sri Lanka. Just before, just before we leave Northern Ireland, um, I was thinking back about this, you know, because it's now almost a quarter of a century now since the Good Friday Agreement. And funny enough, I was talking to Jonathan Powell the other day, who was um, Tony's chief of staff and became the sort of main negotiator, um, you know, enduringly on the peace process. And it was interesting when, when I sort of asked him, we were sort of having a chat about how it all came together. And because when things come together and you can't quite explain why they came together, maybe that's why it won't take that much to, to unpick them. And I said, what do you think it was that brought the Irish, Sinn Féin, the DUP and the Americans all in at that same time with for their very different reasons, wanting the thing to work? And, and Jonathan, who can be quite <laughs> spiky and quite cynical about Tony, he just said uh, it, was, it was Tony. It was Tony's ability to get them there. And when I see – that's why when I get so angry when I see Johnson, because if you think about the qualities you need at a time like this of a political crisis in somewhere as sensitive in Northern Ireland, essentially what the British and Irish governments became were the honest brokers. Now, Johnson, I'm afraid, falls down on the very first element of that, honest – you have to have trust. You have to build trust over time. He spends all his time breaking trust. You have to be absolutely not just on top of, but utterly fixated with the detail and with understanding why each side is against the other. And in a sense, becoming the interlocutor who better explains to the other side why that side feels like that. So you need, you need patience. You need work rate. You need to be there for as long as it takes. For those reasons, I cannot think of anybody less suited to do it. And that's why, of all the reasons why I despise this man, what he's doing in Northern Ireland is right up there. I mean, your point about fragility and the possible return to it is a good segue into into Sri Lanka, which is what I'm currently obsessed with. So Sri Lanka went through its own horrifying civil war. Yeah. And then had a period of real optimism, extraordinary growth for nearly 10 years after the end of the civil war. And it's also, it's it's another story where the, 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 the kind of the, the rebels became the heroes and now they're the villains again. Absolutely. So right the way through, incredible growth. They became an up-middle-income country, probably one of the wealthiest countries in South Asia within about a decade with a lot of Chinese debt. And then Sri Lanka collapsed. And Sri Lanka collapsed, like many, many countries actually across the world, driven first by COVID. Because COVID hits a lot of countries, particularly in Asia and Africa, through a double whammy, firstly, of stopping tourism coming, and secondly, stopping remittances coming back. 
I mean, the, the story of remittances is much, much bigger than international development. In other words, people going to work in other people's countries, going to work in the Gulf, going to work whatever, and sending money back to their families is the biggest driver of half the economies in the world now. So Sri Lanka already in a bad situation. And then the government, and this is what interests me, decided to push really hard to ban artificial fertilizers and mm. do instead organic farming. And this has been the final straw. Very, very sad. Because it turned out that to actually farm organically, they would need nearly five times as much manure as they've actually got. And it will also turn out that they needed to make sure that there was some way of keeping their tea production going, some way of keeping their rice production going. And they are now in a situation of major riots. The entire cabinet resigned. And the reason I'm raising this, I mean, I, I agree a lot of listeners aren't particularly interested in Sri Lanka, but it just brings into focus this bigger question of the fact we're now in a world in which things that we cosily thought we could all do together, you know, we could live in democratic, prosperous, expanding countries where we could do organic food and we could do our environmental rewilding projects and we could focus on renewable energy and we could only work with other human rights respecting powers. Russia, Ukraine, in a sense, is splitting that all apart and forcing these brutal choices on people where suddenly problems, for example, around food security and the fact that food price up 37% this year, globally, 37%, right? It's incredible rise, uh, means that we're suddenly faced with tragic choices. And, and, and also, I mean, I, I think that uh, you mentioned how, how little coverage there is of Lebanon. I think there's been some coverage of, of Sri Lanka, but, but nothing commensurate with the scale of what's actually happening there. Um, interesting, though, how much I was reading something yesterday in a German newspaper, as it happens, but how much were these tax cuts that they brought to them? They're, they're, they're getting a lot of blame for what they call these populist tax cuts, that they suddenly decided the way out of the economic problems they would get was actually to solve the political problem. So they brought in these tax cuts, which have actually made things worse. I think that has been a big problem. And, and I think they're in the classic situation that many countries in the world have been in, which is they were in a world of cheap credit. So they were borrowing a huge amount of money at low interest rates. And then a little bit like Mexico in the 1980s or Argentina in the 80s or Greece in the 2000s, they suddenly find themselves in a situation where they just can't meet their debt mm. um, and they have no income coming in. And at that point, they austerity clamps in. That's the problem, right? All the loaners, the lenders come in and start imposing austerity and you face a spiral of horror, which is what the Greeks got themselves in and have barely emerged from. Now, talking of austerity, Rory, George Tomikakis wants to ask Rory, why did you support austerity? Because I believe very strongly that the country was bankrupt and that we oh, were it big... wasn't. Well, so let's, we, we should have the austerity conversation. Let's have the austerity conversation now, sir. Um, actually, I've, I've been reading this wonderful book. My, my new hero is Nick Clegg. So hero? Really, hero. Yeah, I've, I'm really excited by his. I've been completely won over. I, I never took him seriously. I've been reading his book, Politics Between the Extremes. Mm -hmm. And he makes a really good case for why the Lib Dems went into that government and why they uh, supported I, austerity. I, I, I'm with him on why they went into government. But not on supporting austerity. Not on, no, and I think what happened... Look, I, I like Nick Clegg, and, I, and I, I like Nick Clegg, including, you know, during that period. I don't think you should loathe somebody just because they go into government uh, with the Conservatives. And if you're a political party and you get the chance to go into government, it seems a bit lame not to do it. But I think he allowed himself to become the sort of poster boy for all the really, really bad stuff. He was played by Cameron quite a lot. Um, and I think politically, they decided and they played politically, they did it very, very well. 
Gordon Brown, who'd actually actually been superb during his management of the global financial crisis, he somehow, the Conservatives, with the help of their media lapdogs, managed to persuade many people in the country that somehow Labour was bankrupt and had caused the crash. And it was not true. And we're now paying the price, Rory, 12 years on for the consequences of a policy that was utterly driven by politics, not economics. So so I think there's a number of things to untangle there. I think it's firstly perfectly possible that Gordon Brown did a really good job and also that the public finances were in a big problem. That needn't be his fault. So I agree with you. I think Gordon Brown did do a good job, did about as good a job as he could. But the truth of the matter was that by 2010, we were in a situation with a very large deficit. We were borrowing £140 billion a year extra, adding to our debt every year. Peanuts compared to now. (laughs) And we were in a situation in which we could see right the way through to Greece what was happening to countries that didn't seem to have a clear plan on how they were going to get their deficit or debt under control. It is true, and this is another reason I was an admirer of Nick Clegg's, that actually the austerity that was brought through was much less than George Osborne was banging his chest about. They didn't really make the cuts by 2015 in the way they claimed. They kept pushing the dates out, and the reductions in in spending were less. But I think it was necessary to do that. And part of the reason it was necessary to do that, unfortunately, is that we had been optimistically spending quite a lot, and therefore we were in quite a vulnerable position when the financial crisis hit. Mm, okay, well, we can come back to it another day. I'm, 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 I, I'm fascinated by your. To describe Nick Clegg as your hero, <laughs> particularly, particularly now that he's one of the global faces of big data and tech. One of the global villains, yeah. Well, I I didn't really know him at all. And of course, all I've thought about is here's this horrible person working for Facebook. But I've read this book, Politics Between the Extremes, and it's intelligent, thoughtful, beautifully constructed. Oh, he's going to love it. He's going to love it. I actually sent him a message last week because when I was in Bruges, I went to, to the College of Europe. Bruges is such a beautiful city, by the way. It's so beautiful. But the College of Europe was where Nick met Miriam and just to add in the kind of European elite, I think that's also where Stephen Kinnock may have met Hella, who then went on to become Prime Minister of, there it is, Denmark. Um, but no, I, th- I think Nick Clegg gets, uh, uh, I think he, he took a lot of the hits uh, for Cameron. It's very interesting, in Germany at the moment, by the way, we've just had these elections, and the in, here there was one in Schleswig-Holstein last week, and then uh, the weekend in, in Nordrhein-Westfalen, which is, did you know, that, by the way, if Nordrhein-Westfalen was a, a country, an independent country with the sixth biggest economy in Europe. But they, so they, they've had these elections and the, and the stories are quite interesting because the, the SDP down already, even though Schultz has only been in power for quite a short time. Uh, the Christian Democrats have done well in both. The Greens doing very well in both. The extremes doing very, very badly, the Linker and the AFD. But the party that's really getting hit is the FDP, who, of course, the, you know, the sort of the, I guess they would be the closest to the Lib Dems, I guess, but maybe paying a price because they've gone into, into coalition and yeah. they're the ones who are getting hit. So, so this is the point he keeps coming to, that going into coalition is brutal. I, I also think reading his book that I can see that the writing was on the wall for centre ground politics in Britain in 2015. So mm. um, I think maybe to continue after the break, but of course, as a Conservative, indeed, my colleagues in Labour didn't pay much attention when the Lib Dems were wiped out because it was to our benefit. But if we'd really spotted the signs there in that election 2015 when the Lib Dems... It's all about trends. 
we should have seen that extremism and populism was coming in and that actually first they come for the Lib Dems. Pretty soon they're going to be coming after people like me who are on the moderate conservative end. Have you have you read Nick Clegg's previous brilliant book, How to Stop Brexit? <laughs> and with that, we're going to the break. <laughs> you were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos... Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. So we're talking a lot about what the British press does and doesn't cover. And obviously, speaking to you now from the Middle East, the big issue here that's on everybody's mind is the killing of Shireen Abu Akleh. And in fact, I was at a dinner two nights ago with some Catholic priests who'd just come from a huge uh, church service in Harana that had just been held here in Amman. I mean, am I being unfair in saying that the British press hasn't covered it perhaps as much as they might, given how horrifying what happened was? Uh, I think, no, I think the British broadcast media did. Um, British, I mean, I, I'll be honest, Rory, I don't look at the press that much, but it's, it's certainly not, it's not been massive and certainly not as big as it should be. And I'll tell you one thing I was interested in was seeing that the, the Israeli media, including media that is normally very supportive of the government, were absolutely outraged and appalled. I think the Jerusalem Post said it was a, it was a kind of a disgrace and a, a, a national well, scandal. The, the whole thing was absolutely unbelievable. Mm. So firstly, she was shot. Yeah. And certainly the eyewitnesses there are very, very clear that they believe that it was an Israeli who shot her. Mm. Secondly, of course, this extraordinary scene, I mean, a horrifying scene about, uh, with Israeli policemen attacking the pallbearers carrying mm. the coffin. It's amazing they, they didn't drop it. I mean, amazing they didn't drop it. And, and also the amazing sort of media spin that the Israeli government put out, that they try to say the reason they were attacking the pallbearers is that flags were being carried or Palestinian chants were being said or things were being thrown. But obviously the pallbearers weren't throwing anything. They were holding the coffin. So the, the, I can see no possible reason why they needed to attack the pallbearers with truncheons. I mean, that mm. was the most horrifying vision. Mm. And we, we talk a lot, a lot about, you know, and I, in particular, get very aerated about about journalists and, and journalism at times. But the fact is, the threat under which a lot of journalists are operating in the world at the moment is probably worse than it's ever been. There are more being killed, um, and that's a combination of states where they feel there is impunity. We've seen that most obviously and most visibly in Russia, but also I think I would put that into this in, this one into that category. We've seen it also in relation to organised crime. Um, there've been some very famous cases including nearer to home in Ireland but but also you know different parts of the world where journalists who get too close to organized crime tend to find that they meet a very very unpleasant end um and i what i you know you keep thinking with regard to the middle east that you know we keep saying well one day there'll be this two state solution and everything will work out and etc but and and you can't sort of get dragged down lower and the reason why i think it should have been a much bigger story is this felt like one of those moments where 
in a sense, the, the, the depths of the hatreds and the depths of the extent to which one side, in this case, the Israelis would go, were beyond, frankly, beyond the pale. And, and I agree, I agree that this, the sight of the, there's one, um, clip of a, a two, uh, security guys who were, one of them, I just, it just went in and sort of was kicking the back of the knee of one of the guys who was trying to carry the, carry the coffin. And but can you imagine how horrifying it would have been if the coffin had actually hit the ground? I mean, it, it's just, I mean, it's extraordinary they kept it up. But yeah. what a crazy thing to do to kick some. The, the other thing I suppose that strikes me here is, is that I was talking about how um, 30 years ago, Beirut, Cairo were the great cultural capitals. And obviously the issue of Israel-Palestine was the most important issue here. And the strange thing, which I think is very sort of difficult for that whole conversation is the way in which the Middle East has moved on to other issues so much, how little, mm. oddly, it's talked about because people are increasingly taken up with the rise of these Gulf states, which were cultural backwaters 30 years ago, and now UAE and Saudi are such major players, mm. with concerns around ISIS, with concerns around now food security, Russia, the war in Syria, the crisis in Lebanon. And in a sense, that whole question around the Middle East peace process around the two-state solution has been drowned in, in many, many other issues ever since the Arab Spring. No, it also speaks to, to, to the despair that people feel that, that these enormous problems are not necessarily being addressed in the, the way that they might be. And, you know, you and I were talking earlier about the, if you look at all the problems that we've been highlighting, you know, whether it's food security and broken supply chains, whether it's climate change, whether it's... Uh, whether it's Ukraine, whether whether it's all of the sort of really big challenges, they require countries to work together at a time when the dominant force is this nationalist populism. Um, it's one of the things. One of the things I, I talked about with, with with Hollande. He said that he described Trump. He said Trump was Putin's perfect enemy because Trump didn't want to engage elsewhere. He, it was America first and he meant it. And he said in France, for example, that the, the extremes in France, the extreme right and the extreme left, something they have in common is that they don't support action against against Russia. No, you, you're, you're completely right. And so these two things, the, this this challenge of Russia invading Ukraine, which is about sovereignty, and God forbid, China going after Taiwan, but also the collapse of the global trading system, the fact that we you know, as I say, that I used to complacently say we didn't have a problem with food security. We now have a big problem with food security. Mm. We can't rely in the same way as we could on trade with China, trade with Russia, etc. So that means, you, as you say, that this is exactly the moment, like the end of the Second World War, where we need international institutions desperately. This is why the United Nations was created. This is why all those Bretton Woods institutions were created. And yet they have never seemed so weak at the time when they seem so needed. But they're, but they're weakened because they're international institutions which depend on the nations to give them the resources and the respect that they that they need. Uh, instead of which, you know, whether it's Trump trashing the WHO, and I don't know whether they were too close to China or not, but it didn't seem to me to help us through the pandemic, whether it's the United Nations now with... If you think about it, if Trump comes back, it would mean that four of the five leaders of the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council are post-truth, polarizing populist leaders. Um, I mean, that is, that is a terrifying thought. And, you know, Minette Batters, who, you know, the, the, the head of the National Farmers Union, she, we, we, we were talking earlier in relation to Northern Ireland about if you've got a serious problem, you need a serious government to deal with it. I think she tears her hair out at the inability 
actually to engage properly with government on the understanding that we need a food security policy and strategy for the future. Instead of John Redwood saying, let's knit our own vegetables and, you know, Brexit will come good in 50 years if you're Rhys Mogg. I mean, there's no planning for what we now need to do. That's crazy. Now, questions. We've done Oliver, who asked, as a Jewish man, I'm usually surrounded by pro-Israelis, but increasingly I'm finding it hard to defend Israel to my friends who are more supportive of Palestine. Love to hear your thoughts. So I hope we've answered Oliver's question. And over to you. Well, I was um, looking at some of the, we get wonderful data on these podcasts, and we do seem to be getting quite a lot of young uh, listeners. And I want to quote Aurora, because this will maybe help her with her A-level exams next week. She says, help us A-level students out with the topic that will be on the exam next week. Does the media hold too much influence over the outcome of elections? And before we get into that, another one from somebody called Kazia Zajak. Why don't other major democracies have such rampant right-wing media? What can be done to get more media that is fact and intelligent analysis and not just propaganda? Um, Now, I would argue on the second one, by the way, there are other democracies with the same problem. America with Fox News now, brackets, Murdoch, brackets, and Australia, brackets, Murdoch, brackets. Uh, And we've got an election in Australia this weekend where, oh, I so hope Scott Morrison loses because that would be a real fight back against the whole populist wave. And there's something very, very interesting happening there, by the way, Rory. Do you know about the Teal Independence? No, go on. Tell us about Teal well, Independence. Teal, this, this should interest you because it's all about it's a, Teal. Is a, I didn't know this, but Teal is a colour between blue and green. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I, I did know it was a colour between blue and green, yeah. Well, I didn't know that. So, you know, I, I obviously, yet again, I went to the wrong damn school, but never mind. I think it's just part of your, it's just part of your machismo. You believe that you shouldn't know those sort of things. <laughs> well, the Teal Independence in Australia are almost all women, almost all fighting uh, in prosperous seats, safe seats held by Morrison's party, very well funded by uh, fighting against climate on climate and corruption. And it seems to me they're going to do quite well and could actually have an impact on the the outcome. But back to Australia and America, I think we do have a problem. Murdoch is the the link. But on the point about whether they have too much well, can I just come in on that, Alison? Because obviously we know what you think. <laughs> no, you but, but, but I, but I, didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't, cha- I didn't challenge you enough last time on the fact you talk about things like the Daily Express a lot. But am I not right that they basically their readership is collapsing, and that although we may rant about what happens in the print media, fewer and fewer people actually read the print media, and That's, actually, yeah. and, and, I, and famously, Putin in Russia uh, basically doesn't do much to control print media, he basically focuses on controlling television because he's concluded that actually it's only television that really matters. And that is where he's very, very sensible. And their papers, they had lots of papers, most of them been shut down. My beef with the broadcasters has always been the extent to which they allow the newspapers and particularly the right-wing newspapers, and as you say, with smaller circulation than they used to have, but it's still pretty big for some of them, the Mail, the Sun, you know, these are papers that still can pack a punch. Um, the broadcasters allow them to set their agenda far, far too much. Now, the question from Aurorum, do they influence the outcome of elections? Now, I listened, Ian Dale, by the way, is a massive fan of our podcast, and he's always plugging it on his podcast. Oh, we should plug Um, him then. Well, so I'm going to plug his book podcast. I've I've got to confess, whisper it, I've never listened to the one he does with Jackie Smith. I will, I promise. Um, But he did a very, very, very good interview with Neil Kinnock, over two hours long. 
And Neil came across absolutely wonderfully, really did. But Neil made the point, Neil wasn't whinging about the press in a way that maybe I think he could and should, but he did make the point that elections are won in years, not weeks. And what I think the media does, we're seeing it a little bit with Keir Starmer at the moment, they don't give the platform that they should be giving to all the major parties for policy. And you had a dig at the mirror last week and my, my sort of saying they're, they're just the same. I can remember when I was a journalist, even though, yes, the coverage would be slanted against the Tories. Yes, a story that was good for Labour would get prominence over a story that might be good for the Tories. But when it came to things like what the policy proposals were, you'd be able to find them there in the paper. Whereas now, I honestly don't think that papers like the Mail, Sun, Express, they, they don't they don't cover well, does, does, does the mirror? I think if you read the mirror, you'd know what the government was planning. You'd know the, what the government intentions were. Now, yes, they whack them hard. Okay. And the other point to make about the mirror, it's the question of balance within the media, which then impacts the, the broadcaster's balance. And talking of Russian broadcasting, yeah. by the way, yeah. Rory, did you see the thing I sent you about the, the, uh, the, the Russian ex-colonel? Yeah, yeah, that was very interesting. Mikhail Kordarenok. And he was on the main Russian TV chat show. And the interviewer, Olga Skabayeva, was desperate. People can see this on my Twitter feed if they look. He, she was desperate, desperate to try and get him off the subject. But he kept saying, no, Ukrainian morale is very high. We are, to we are becoming totally isolated in the world. And it was so off message. And what you saw was somebody who actually knows what he's on about up against somebody who is literally spewing propaganda. Question for you, Jonathan, why has Alison ever run for public office? <sighs> I wish I had, and I know that I will regret not having done it if I don't do it, which I probably won't. Um, now, you might say, and you wouldn't be the first, because David Ginola, no, no less. No, here's one, Rory. Do you know who David Ginola is? No. David Ginola is uh, a French, former French footballer who... Virtually everybody, every human being in the world knows because he's a great footballer and a very flamboyant character. But I appreciate your. Can, can, I, can I just be clearer? Because I really want to pull you out on this. You, is, is that like all your male mates, or do you think literally every person in the world knows who's. Is, are you not quite gendered on your obsessions no, with my football? Fiona, who is has exactly the same interest in football that you do, she would know who David Jiddle is. Okay, not right. least because he used to do hair and hair, hair shampoo adverts. Anyway, he once read. He saw me on French television saying, "I would re always regret it not standing for office." And he phoned me up because I'd played with him in a couple of charity matches. And he phoned me up and he said, "Listen, if you know you're going to regret something, you know what you have to do. You have to do the thing that you know you're going to regret if you don't do it." Which is a very wise thing to say. However, I then said, "The trouble is, I also know I'll regret it if I do it." And that's why this is such a hard thing. And if I go back through my career, 97, Tony asked me to get a seat. Right. Okay. And I said, well, do you want me to run the campaign or not? Oh, yeah. He said, yeah, you better do that. 2001, I wanted to get a seat. Yeah. And Tony said, no, you've got to do the campaign. Right. 2005, I was sick to death of politics. Right. And I was out of it. 2010, Gordon wanted both me and Fiona to get seats. And we'd sort of got our life back by then. Right. Um, and I think it's that thing about, you know, do you want to... Well, I think you should do it, Alistair. I, I'm with him. I'm with him. I, I may not know his hair ads, but I think he's onto something. If you regret it, you should do it. Yeah, but what if you know that you're going to regret it if you do? And by the way, just <laughs> on, on, your, on your new party, we were yeah. talking about Slup last week. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, your Scottish Liberal Unionist Party, somebody sent a thing in saying, surely it should be called the Party of Liberal Unionist Scots. Then it's plus. Yay! Oh, oh beautiful. Oh, I love that. I love that. Brilliant. Brilliant, 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 brilliant. I want to ask, I want to question this yeah. question from, uh, from Graham Tottle. <laughs> it's a fair question. Why have we never discussed Wales? That's a very, very, very good question. That's a, it's a deep, deep question. I think it's a, it's, um, I, 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 I worry about that actually. I think that's very indicative of, of, of Scots like us. We get obsessed with Ireland. We obviously yeah. end up talking about England a lot. We ignore Wales. I'm with you. Yeah. And, and, and also from Howell Davis, he said, funny, I've asked a question about Neil Kinnock. He said, you mentioned Neil Kinnock on the, po- on the podcast. Do you think that it was anti Welsh sentiment that stopped him becoming, Prime Minister, do you think if he was from Durham, he might have won? And there is something there, there is something about a kind of anti-Welsh thing amongst the English, I think. I think with the Scots, the Scots are seen as kind of, you know, big and robustious and what have you. There's something, I find the English very patronising towards the Welsh. And also, let me other thing, I have, to, by the way, and, and Graham, I'm with you on this, because I've been trying to get Wales into our list of subjects for some time, but Rory keeps saying, no, let's do Sri Lanka, let's do Pakistan, <laughs> let's do... Uh, but the other thing, the other thing to, that, that I think is worth saying is, Mark Drakeford, if you were designing a modern 21st century political leader, you wouldn't necessarily get Mark Drakeford out of the out of the, the machine. But I think Mark Drakeford has actually shown real calm, steady leadership um in Wales. And maybe that's why maybe that's why we don't talk about it as much because he doesn't cause the chaos that Boris Telegraph and Spectator Johnson does. Now wait wait now now we've got a question from Dom, which I think works well for you, Alistair, because this is very much your your area of expertise. Can you can you tell us what your view is uh, on 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 all the stuff going on between Rebecca Vardy and Colleen at the moment? Because you know I, I I obviously don't feel qualified on this, but I think this is definitely your strength. <laughs> I feel I feel absolutely ins- insulted, and I have to t- I have to say as well, all that I know about Rebecca and Colleen has been fired at me over the breakfast table by Fiona. For what it's worth, she thinks the whole thing is an utter waste of time. Uh, she thinks they're both coming over as utterly ridiculous, and she's finding the lawyers quite irritating as well. And just, just to explain to our international listeners, for those people listening from Cote d'Ivoire, just to give us a bit of context, is these, these are two uh, wives of very famous footballers who are currently taking each other to court. When you say they're very famous, Rory, one of them is Jamie Vardy. <laughs> who does Jamie Vardy play for? Leicester City. Oh, he's done his homework. <laughs> that, would, that would have been an awful moment, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. Anyway, back, back, back to the explanation. Three million pounds at stake, and they're arguing about which one of them has been leaking, or whether one of them has been leaking to the Sun newspaper from their private Instagram accounts. Right. I tell you what, what it what it what it is showing. Uh, when you think of, of you know we talked about Lebanon not being covered or Sri Lanka or whatever. When you see the army of photographers outside that court, you get a sense of what our media prefers to be doing. They prefer this sort of crap. And you know when we talk about the media, so here I am in Germany, right? Let me do a little German paper review for you. There's the front page of Die Welt, a match. Yep. Picture of Pitch of the Queen, yeah. Picture of the Queen. But yep. then inside, I mean, this is, that's, look at that, it's just slabs of words, and they're serious. And even people talk about built sighting, and people say built sighting is like the sun. There's this, there's today's built, right? Front page is about the war in Ukraine. Yeah. Page three is about the war in Ukraine. Page yep. two is about the election that we're talking about. And the back, look at the back, the back page, 
Yeah, the Queen again. Now, I'm Queen. Queen. I'm I'm embarrassed to say that when I was in British politics, I actually spent most of my time reading the New York Times for international news. Oh yeah, quite and, right. And it's so good. I mean, it's unbelievably good, and it's still true for anybody listening to the podcast. If you want to know what's happening in Burundi at the moment or what's happening in Cote d'Ivoire. Your best bet is to go to the New York Times. Or, Rory, if you want to know what's happening in Britain, because they ran a story last week about this sanctioned Russian oligarch who's bunged $600,000 to the Conservative Party. It's barely figured in the British press. That is the point, Aurorum. It's it's what they do to frame the debate for the rest of us. That is what is venal and corrupt. And I'm afraid Murdoch is the biggest influence. Well, let's, let's finish with that then. So next question on that. New York Times has a story. The Tories received a donation of $630,225 from a Russian oligarch who's now been sanctioned. This story has got minimal coverage in the UK. If it's true, it's political dynamite. Why are the opposition parties and the media not running with it? We know what you think about the media, but why are the opposition parties not running with it, Alistair? I think there's a... I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, first of all, I think they would say I think yeah. they would say the big thing happening at the moment is the cost of living crisis, and we have to be focused on that. And in addition, we're getting up to the period of the election of this parliament where we need to start putting out our own positive agenda. And frankly, that can't come a day too soon. What I would say, and I've been saying for some time now, is that these issues of honesty and corruption and uh, transparency and all the stuff that we know that Johnson doesn't do properly. I think it should be the, the basis of Labour constant, relentless campaigning. And I'm not saying it should all be done by Keir Starmer uh, or even by Angela Rayner. Um, you, but you should have a group of kind of, you know, really energetic, really aggressive MPs who are just on it day after day after day. A bit like Chris Bryant has been in relation to some of the issues to do with Ukraine. You need that sense of being on it, at it all the time. And what's more... You need to be criticising the media for not not uh, covering it. Why have they not covered Michelle Moan, by the way? That's the other one that does my head in. She's a Tory peer. She gets there's there's some huge sort of you know PPE contract, COVID contracting thing going on, and she gets raided by the police. And it's like now, unless there's been some kind of you know there's sort of <laughs> a national security element to it, which by the way is the argument Johnson is using in relation to why he's not publishing the Lebedev advice. But why is that? Why is that? How can that possibly not be newsworthy that a Tory peer is raided by the police in relation well, to COVID what, corruption? What, what we have to hope, and maybe this is the thing to finish on, take up next week, is that the question of lying becomes more central to British politics, that people come to understand, as we all feel instinctively, that there is a big, big problem having a leader who's a liar, that nothing works if the person who's leading, if a manager, if a leader lies all the time. They can't get policy through. They can't. Voters don't know what they're voting for, and the whole thing goes to hell in a handbasket. We, we, should we tell them that we did an, an interview with um, Michael Burke for the Radio Times earlier, and and he he wondered whether we agreed too much, um, but we've disagreed a bit today, and uh, we're but we're ending on a point of agreement about the importance of. But that says, Roy, this guy has got to be gone. We cannot have Johnson as Prime Minister and this wretched cabinet trotting out day after day like nodding dogs to tell the lies that he wants them to tell. It's doing f- massive damage. And yet somehow they get away with it. That's what's so kind of mesmerising and, so, and, and, so, yeah. and yet somehow yeah. Labour aren't 500,000 million points ahead in the polls. Yeah. Well, on that point of maths, um, thank you all very, very much for listening to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. 
And me, Alistair Campbell, looking forward to the spike on Amazon for Nick Clegg's amazing book as Rory Stewart's new hero. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah, see you next week, Rory. Goodbye. Goodbye.